begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we'll continue with the hymn of the month, Jerusalem, the Golden. Jerusalem, the golden, with milk and honey blessed, the promise of salvation, the place of peace and rest. We know not, oh, we know not what joys await us there. Of glory, the bliss beyond compare. Within those walls of Zion sounds forth a joyful song as saints join with the angels and all their martyr throng. The princes have with them the daylight history, the city of the blessed shines bright with glorious sheen. Around the throne of David, the saints from songs of triumph to celebrate the feast. They sing to Christ and Eden who conquered in the fight who won for them forever their gleaming robes of white. Sweet and blessed country, the home of God's elect. Oh, sweet and blessed country, that faithful hearts expect. In mercy, Jesus, bring us to that eternal rest. And spirit All right, we'll continue with the uh, catechism memory work. Continuing in the table of duties. 
uh, part 15 to employers and supervisors, and we'll read the Bible memory work together. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Ephesians 6, 9. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In Luther's morning prayer, I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. <clears throat> All right, uh, kids can go up to Sunday school. Eric, you guys want to get together and figure out what you're doing? Right. Think the heat's kicked on enough? Take off the jacket. All right, so uh, for the uh, hymn today, I just want to point out a couple of, <clears throat> excuse me, a couple of uh, things kind of in the imagery of this hymn. The, the hymn is Jerusalem the Golden is filled with really a, just a lot of beautiful images. Uh, of course, from Revelation, we get the new Jerusalem with the streets of gold that's where the the title comes from and milk and honey um is this image you know spanning back from the old testament and the promised land uh that they're going to the place with milk and honey um which are rich foods uh foods of uh if you will high fat right (laughs) high kind of high sugar content if you will sweet foods um and Isaiah speaks in that language, um, for instance, in Isaiah 25, when he's talking, that's a common funeral text, um, speaking of the place of a feast of uh, rich and fat foods. Um, and the, so this whole image of the, the place of heaven, uh, the place where we go to be with Christ, and especially the new Jerusalem that Christ is going to establish, when he comes back again, the new heavens and the new earth, and this is the this is the capital city of the new heavens and the new earth, right? Um, Jerusalem, it's it's not speaking of the 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 dispensationalist who we've if you've uh, came to my six part, eight part, maybe nine part, I don't even know how many parts it was series on eschatology for Lutheranism 101. Uh, we talked a lot about dispensationalism. The dispensationalism uh, 
crowd wants to say that this refers to the literal nation state of Israel, the modern nation state of Israel, the modern city, Jerusalem. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, this uh, weather changes have my my throat going a little crazy here, but <clears throat> um, but that that's not. We wouldn't say that's what this is a metaphorical Jerusalem, if you will. This is um, not necessarily the the literal Jerusalem uh, state that that God is gonna that Jesus is gonna come and uh, sit on the throne at. But when He does come and establish his new heavens and new earth when he does uh, come and raise the saints from the dead and when he comes to judge in the final judgment um, he will establish a new heavens and a new earth and that will be a place that is physical and this and there will be a capital city if you will um, the city of Zion the place where where Christ reigns um, and so we have all these we have Jerusalem, the golden. We also have within the walls of Zion and around the throne of David, um, if you're kind of looking at the first lines. And uh, these are, again, just beautiful images of this place where Christ is going to reign and where we will be able to go um, physically and be with Christ face to face and praise him uh, with the angels. And... Uh, sound forth the joyful song as saints joined with the angels and all the martyr throng. Uh, the prince is ever with them. Uh, so Christ is both our prince and king. Uh, two different images, but kind of combined there. Uh, the daylight is serene. The city of the blessed shines bright with glorious sheen. Um, it, it's just, yeah, it's it's such a great hymn. And then the, the final thing I just want to point out there, I'm going to run out of stuff to talk about for next week, but... Uh, oh, sweet and blessed country, the home of God's elect. Oh, sweet and blessed country that faithful hearts expect. This is the idea, if you look throughout scripture, of fatherland. Um, so there's a Greek word for this that's translated in a couple different ways. But uh, the word in Greek is patria. Um, but it is a – this is a, the word for country. Um, more traditionally – uh, you can see pater, the root, um, is uh, father. Um, I'm thinking this section might be Latin, but anyway. Uh, the idea of your country being your fatherland, the places where your fathers are from. This is what I was talking about in the sermon Um last week for all saints that where you're from the the place where you're from means something to your identity and the place where we're from as children of god our source is in the new jerusalem it's in it's in jerusalem the golden and this is our this is our country that we're going to this is our fatherland and um, it's it can kind of, it's it can kind of sound like a weird thing to say if you uh, aren't used to this kind of language uh, to set to to think of like heaven as a country as like a nation but but that's actually how the scripture speaks of it right again there's a capital city Zion 
and there's and this this place, this new heavens, this new earth is a is a nation. It's one nation uh, united under uh, under Christ in this way. So um, to think of uh, our ultimate nation um, or our country, our fatherland as heaven, um, I think is a is a beautiful way to think about it. That this is where we're from. This is where we're going home to. And um, any other earthly nation kind of pales in comparison to this nation. So, um, anyway, yeah, I just uh, I love all this the this whole painting of the picture of heaven here for us in that hymn. Any questions or thoughts on that? I think the word expatriate, you know, like yeah, patriot or expatriate comes from that word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah, patriot of your country. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure it's Latin. I don't know why I said Greek. Yeah, really. um, yeah pater is because pater is uh, is that father in Spanish too? I think it might be. Does anyone know? Um, padre. Yeah, yeah. Which would be yeah, it's a Latin derivative. Yeah, yeah, it's Latin. Okay. Um, yeah, sometimes I get my languages confused. Um, never get Hebrew too confused because it's so different. But but the Western languages kind of run together sometimes. Uh, in the uh, catechism for today, uh, we have to to employers and supervisors, which again is a more modern translation. I mean, older translations just said to masters because that's what the Bible says is to masters. Um, we talked last week about slavery and about how the Bible gives a little bit different view of slavery than what we think of of slavery from, uh, you know, history books uh, today, and how uh, the American Civil War obviously colors our view of slavery in a certain way. Um, but there's been different kinds of slavery throughout the history of the world um, that were not exactly like that. Um, there is such a thing as a non-oppressive slavery, um, where basically, you know, people are servants of another household and they belong to that household and they're taken care of according to these biblical commands. So um, last week we had the verses about what a slave was to do, um, which was to obey um, because they were put into this ordered relationship um, and. And Paul commands that in the Bible. Um, this is also applicable to, as the modern translations say, employees and employers. In some ways, there's not – I mean there's not really a difference um, in the sense that if you kind of do the translation work of economies um, from the ancient world to today um, – we are slaves in a sense if we have jobs, right? Uh, I mean, we're free, right? We can quit and we can go work somewhere else if we want to, but, but yeah, you still have you, you, there's still rules you have to follow. Um, there's an order, right? There's a that you're not free to simply, you know, you can't you can't just have a job and then slack off or you know not show up if you don't want to. I mean, you can, but there's consequences to that, right? Um, and if you want to earn an honest wage, then you have to follow 
an order. You have to follow under uh, a certain kind of uh, obedience. And so it is applicable in that way um, that that in some in some ways uh, I, I mean I think I think of it like this when when God gives the fourth commandment honor your father's your father and your mother what he's talking about the, the way that um, that's always been interpreted throughout Christian history and uh, when Luther explains it in the small catechism he says that we should love love cherish and obey our parents and other authorities that God established creation with order. God is an order. God, God is a God of order, not a God of chaos, uh, Paul says. And we're put into all these ordered relationships. So there's mother and father and children, right? And the children don't run the household. The parents do, right? And with there's husband and wife, and the husband is given charge over his wife, and the wife is called to submit. The husband's called to sacrifice and provide and care for. Um, there's an order to all these things. There's teachers and students. There's pastors and congregations. There's government and citizens. There's uh, employers and employees. And all these things are in some sense uh, the same kind of ordering, right? That, that there's always one that's given headship and one that's given to submission and uh, those both come with attendant commands and attendant um, ways of living to be to be godly and so um, it's kind of always applicable Um, these things are always applicable to all of us but anyway the the command for masters and slaves or the command for employers uh, to their employees is um, to treat them with respect and honor, so treat them in the same way that the slaves are, are to treat their masters or that the, the employees are to treat their treat their employers. Um, the verse we had last week, um, Ephesians 6, uh, what, what was the numbers? 5 to 6? Yeah, Ephesians 6, 5 to 6. Uh, masters, treat your slaves in the same way, so with respect and honor. Uh, do not threaten them, right? So... Where slavery goes wrong or where employees and employers go wrong, um, one of the ways is when the one who's given headship oppresses and and mistreats, right, um, and threatens. Uh, since you know that he who is both their master and yours, that would be God, is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Um, so... Uh, Employers or masters are called to uh, treat those under them with fairness, with justice, with respect, and with honor, right? Um, so obviously, uh, you know, when it again, when it comes to the, that topic of slavery that um, are the, the way that's been colored in American history is that this is like not possible. but the, but the Christian view is is very, uh, simple that any mistreatment of of those who are under a master's house or those who are under an employer of any kind are to be treated with respect and honor and not to be 
um, oppressed or, or mistreated. So um, that that's obviously a command of scripture. It's kind of like when, uh, you know, in Ephes- also in Ephesians 5, whenever the verse comes up that wives are to submit to their husbands and, and the world gets all in a fuss about, what are, what are you saying? Does that... If you if you quote that verse, that means you think that husbands should be able to beat their wives. Like, who said that? No one. No one. That's not. You got to read the rest of the verses. You know about how husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church, being able to sacrifice for them. Right. You know. So uh, our our modern world doesn't always want to um, take the time to parse out these things, and it thinks that you know, oh, the Bible's a, it's all patriarchal and it's old and it's outdated and um you know it's pro-slavery and and all these things um but the the bible gives very strict commands and limitations on all these things and how they're supposed to actually work in a godly way um and people don't want to do the work to parse that out so uh, it is what it is any questions or thoughts on that all right so we're going to pick back up then in uh, Bible history, after our short little our short little break into um, Reformation history, which we had the last two weeks, and excuse me, We're looking at a uh, Judas king. So uh, remember, we, we've the, the kingdom has been divided for a while now. We uh, after the division of the kingdom, uh, which is recorded in First Kings 11, um, right before our discussion of Rehoboam today, and actually also in First Kings 12, we're kind of going to revisit how the kingdom is divided. The kingdom is divided. Uh, Ten tribes go to the north to Israel, which we discussed thoroughly, all of Israel's kings and all of Israel's prophets and the books of the Bible that speak directly to Israel um, in that divided kingdom period. If uh, if you don't have one of these, uh, up here are some um, Bible history uh, reference material packets. If anyone wants one of these, does anyone want one of these? Um, they're, they're, these are up here. They, these have some maps and charts in them to kind of keep track of where we're at. If you remember my my analogy for keeping track of the divided kingdom period in Bible history is it's like uh, the Lord of the Rings or the Marvel movies. Um, there's a lot of characters. It's all very complicated. There's a lot of names and places, but um, it's a really good story, and it's actually historically true in this case, unlike Lord of the Rings and the Marvel movies. Um, it's actually historically true, but there's a lot of names and a lot of places and a kind of complicated um, history. But if we put in the work to learn about it, um, it becomes very, very interesting, and it is learnable. Right, just like people are obsessed with the Marvel movies, are obsessed with the Lord of the Rings, and um, are able to tell you about every little detail of all those stories. Um, 
we can put in the work and learn the Bible, the story of the Old Testament, especially, and especially the divided kingdom, which is the most complicated part of the Old Testament, better. So always keep that in mind. Uh, but today we're going to look at the first king of Judah, Rehoboam. Um, if you look at the, the kings and prophets chart, um, Rehoboam, this is back in the uh, – we're jumping back a couple hundred years from where we left off in Israel um, because we did all of Israel. Now we're doing all of Judah. So um, Rehoboam is in the nine, 930s to 931 and 913, so um, jump, jumping back from the 730s where we where we left off with Hosea um, and or 720s in the with the Assyrian captivity which we talked about last time we were doing Bible history uh, and you also see that the prophet there who we'll encounter a little bit today is Shemaiah uh, Shemaiah Shemaiah uh, who's the prophet that prophesies to Rehoboam so uh, that's what we're going to cover today the background of uh, Rehoboam and of the king of Jude, the first king of Judah. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is, first of all, backing up a couple generations is Second Samuel seven. Does anyone remember off the top of their heads uh, what is in Second Samuel seven? Anyone? Okay. Second Samuel seven is where. The Lord prophesies to David and promises him an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting throne, the Davidic kingdom. Um, and it's said to be everlasting. It's said to be there's going to be one, uh, there's going to be a David who comes and reigns forever. And uh, of course, this is talking about who? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. Right. Good Sunday school answer. Second um, Samuel seven is talking about Jesus, the king, like we were talking about with Jerusalem, the golden, the king who's going to come and reign forever uh, on his throne in the city of David. Right. Jerusalem, the golden uh, around the throne of David. Right. That's from Second Samuel seven. Um, however. What's on the people's minds in Judah? So remember, so one thing to keep in mind, um, this is, I'm bringing this up for Judah that's different than Israel because what tribe is David from? Judah's tribe, right? Um, so the two tribes in, the, in the, the northern kingdom, which goes by the term Israel, is ten tribes. I won't ask you to name them all. Thank you. <laughs> the southern kingdom, how many tribes are left out of the 12? Goes by Judah. How many are left? 12, 12 minus 10? Two. 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 All right, good. Two tribes. Obviously, one of the tribes is Judah. Does anyone know what the other tribe is? Benjamin. Benjamin. So we have Judah and Benjamin in the in the southern kingdom, Judah, and uh, in First Kings 12, I believe it says it's about. Um, oh, it's only a couple pages away. Um, 
whenever the kingdom splits. At some point when I was reading it's it uh when I was preparing I remember it gave a number for how many men were in Judah. Say it was a hundred thousand. Hundred and eighty thousand chosen men. That's first Kings twelve twenty one. So hundred and eighty thousand chosen men uh, stayed and remember what what's in uh the what's in Judah? This is where uh what's the capital city of Judah? Jerusalem. Yeah. Uh, they have to make capital cities in Israel, uh, which we talked about already, and they set up the golden calves in Israel. So, um, all right. Uh, sorry, I got I got distracted there. Where was I? Oh yeah, Second Samuel seven, Davidic kingdom. Uh, so. Judah and Jerusalem and Zion, right? This is the this is the place where the Messiah is supposed to come. This is what's been promised. Um, you know, all the way back from even Genesis three, the seed's gonna come. Genesis is all about where's the seed, where's the seed, where's the seed. Genesis twelve, you get the promises to Abraham that a descendant of Abraham is gonna be this, and then the, at the end of Genesis, you get the promise that this is gonna that the Messiah is gonna come from the line of Judah. And then uh, all through Judges, uh, you know, we're waiting to see uh, where and then, well, and then they go into the promised land and they're supposed to take over the uh, Canaanite region and um, reign there. And the Messiah is going to come and there's going to be the, the king. And um, that doesn't happen. After, and judge after judge, um, things keep getting worse and worse. And so they beg for this king. And they they eventually end up with David and Solomon, and this promise is made to David, but then David dies, and then what? And then we get to this problem. So this is the immediate context of Rehoboam. Um, who who who's Rehoboam's father? Also David's son, Solomon. Solomon. Um, uh, so Solomon comes, and does anyone remember way back at the end of the United Kingdom um, how Solomon's Rain ended. Solomon had a lot of what wives, wives. Yeah. and uh, his wives were not all Israelites. They were all not descendants of Abraham. Uh, they were he married outside the uh, the the his people, the the chosen nation. And that involved marrying people of other religions, not just Old Testament Christianity. And so he started to build uh, – he, he apostatized um, to some degree or another, and there's always debate about whether or not Solomon was repented or not um, by the end of his life. Uh, the Bible is not super clear on that issue, um, but he had built um, shrines. And uh, we'll just actually – he had built shrines for some of the religions of his wives, um, and he had uh, – we'll just say apostasy. He had started – he had he had turned away in some way from uh, – in many ways from the Lord. Uh, he had started to not listen to the Lord. And so, you know, with, and so, what, did, what, what was Solomon's big thing he accomplished during his reign as king? One of the big things. 
territory. Yeah, he expanded the territory. Okay, that's – I figured someone might say that. But what was another thing he did, another big thing he did? Build the temple. He built the temple, right? So we, th- we think like the city of David, the temples built, the Ark of the Covenants in the temple, and when the Messiah has got to come, the Messiah has got to come, but then apostasy, right? Then apostasy. And so uh, the reason I'm bringing all this up is that when we are looking at Judah, one thing we're looking at, I think, is that looking back, we know this is about Christ who's going to come 900 years later. But at the time, they're still waiting for the Messiah. And it, it seems like it keeps getting closer and closer. And yet things also keep getting worse. Um, and uh, things are going to get even much more worse eventually until we get to the uh, Babylonian captivity when things are really bad. This was the same story in, in Israel, uh, right? Or you can look back. It's the same story with the United Kingdom, same Excuse me. Same story with the judges. Things will get better. God will send salvation and then and then sin takes over and corrupts and corrupts and corrupts until finally the Messiah uh, finally does come. Okay. So that's the context. Uh, But let's dive into uh, first Kings 12 a little bit. So I'm going to kind of summarize what happens here. Um, so 1 Kings 12, uh, Rehoboam uh, is the son of Solomon, and the plan is basically for him to take over, for him to become king. Now, if you remember, Jeroboam is a kind of natural-born leader. Jeroboam is going to be the king of Israel. Uh, we've talked about him Way back before, and if you remember throughout the history of Israel, uh, what was the phrase that was repeated over and over again about the evil kings that they followed in the ways of Jeroboam and uh, continued to sin, the sins of, of Jeroboam? Well, Rehoboam is the counterpart to Jeroboam. So Jeroboam had uh, started to rebel and kind of form his own cohort. Um, of from the ten from the ten tribes that are going to form Israel, people had started to follow him. At the time, he had fled to Egypt at the end of First Kings 11, and uh, Rehoboam is supposed to become king. And uh, they go to make Rehoboam king, and Jeroboam and his cohort come to Rehoboam and say, "Look, if you're going to be king," When Saul, by the time of by the end of your father's reign, you your father had made the yoke very heavy on us. So one of the things he had done is establish a lot of taxes as the as the territories had expanded, and uh, he'd made life difficult for a lot of his people. And Rehoboam goes. To the uh, this is verse six. He goes to the elders of Solomon and consults them and says, "So Jeroboam and his crowd they ask, uh, lighten the load on us. 
make make things easier on us, you know, lessen the taxes, so on and so forth. And Rehoboam goes to the elders of Solomon, and they say, I'll just read their advice, verse 7, If you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. So he tells them basically, uh, yeah, you need if you want them to be on your side, if you want them to respect you, um, especially when you got all this rebellion going on, then you need to compromise with them and you need to lighten their load. And uh, Rehoboam rejects that advice, and then he brings in his own uh, band of young people, uh, band of young people to uh, tell him what they think he should do. Basically, his friends. And uh, the young men who he had grown up with, they speak to him. This is verse 10. And they say, thus, you should speak to the people who have spoken to you, saying your father made our yoke heavy, but but you make it lighter on us. That Thus, you shall say to them, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges and so uh, Rehoboam uh, takes this advice and uh, he makes things harder on everyone and when Jeroboam comes back and asks ask him what are you going to do uh, this is what he tells him he tells him I'm going to uh, chastise you even harder I'm going to make things more difficult for you and um then this is what causes the division of the kingdom. Jeroboam then takes his people and they leave and they go north. And you have that uh, the verse 16 um, and, and 17, which is in some ways some of the most two, two most important verses in Bible history. Now, when Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, what share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. So there's a lot of things going on here. Um, The first thing to point out, I think, application-wise, is um, that there are proverbial lessons here that we can learn from. And it's ironic that there are proverbial lessons we can learn from uh, because who wrote the majority of the book of Proverbs? Solomon and his elders. So the elders that Rehoboam goes to are pretty wise people, um, just like Solomon was wise. And Solomon made mistakes, right? Solomon was sinful, and Solomon uh, did things that were against probably his own advice he would give someone else. Um, And that is, that's part of the sinful condition is being hypocritical, right? But it is ironic that the uh, son of the guy who wrote Proverbs, and and Proverbs, I've said this before, what's the nature of Proverbs? Proverbs is a man writing to who? His son. Right? So... Um, he's, Solomon very well could have in mind Rehoboam when he's writing Proverbs, right? Rehoboam is the um, the son that is selected to take over the throne um, 
of of Israel, and it's it's very well could be that he had Rehoboam in mind when he wrote wrote Proverbs. Well, what is what are some of the lessons in Proverbs? Um, if you read Proverbs, you find out that uh, young men are basically, to use a modern term, cocky, <laughs> uh, and prefer to do things by force. Uh, their young men are, are generally forceful people, right? Um, they and and they. Uh, you can see here that they assume success. So over and over again in Proverbs, Solomon has to tell his son that uh, these things will lead to destruction if you if you do things this way. You don't. It doesn't look like they will, right? Uh, there's the the idea of the seductress in um, Proverbs that seems sweet at first. Uh, but then when you go into her tent or you go into her, whenever the seductress brings you in, um, you find out it actually leads to destruction. And young, th- these are things that young men need to be careful of. Um, and if you know young men in your life, uh, these are things to watch out for. It. Now, that's not to say that other people, young women older men, older women don't also have their own inclinations to different kinds of sins. So um, young men are generally taken away by lust. Older men are generally taken away by greed. Um, Young men are taken away by women. Old men are taken away by money. There are different kinds of sinful inclinations for every type of person. But um, this is something that uh, we can see here playing out in time that uh, the young men think that they – so Rehoboam thinks that he can handle um, the divided king, – the kingdom is dividing before his eyes, right? Jeroboam is, is splitting. It's a delicate situation, and he just kind of assumes it will be fine. He's cocky. He thinks that he can handle it, and he thinks the way to do so – is by force and not by uh, tact, right? Um, he he kind of lacks this tact. Um, so a couple of lessons here then for young men, but also for everybody, is uh, one, the importance of Christian counsel. So... We see this a couple times in the Bible that having good counsel is an incredibly valuable thing. So there are instances of good counsel and bad counsel, right? Job gets bad counsel from his friends, and uh, that is a disservice to him that he has to work through, and then those friends are eventually punished. Rehoboam here gets bad counsel from his friends. Um, but he gets good counsel from the from the elder men, but he 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 neglects to heed it. The importance of of getting good Christian counsel um, it's important for this reason, I think, because when you're thinking about wisdom, like in the book of Proverbs with Solomon, 
the Bible does not specifically address every single situation that people find themselves in, right? And it, it, and it couldn't because uh, situations are dependent on so many factors, right, that um, there can't be, um, you know, specific advice for for any given possible situation that might arise in a Christian's life, right? And so what the Bible gives are commands and principles and ways of, of being. It gives virtues and vices, and it gives um, lots, of, lots of wisdom advice, but then that wisdom advice and those virtues and those vices – they all need to be thought through and applied to specific situations. So we call this uh, in pastoral theology uh, casuistry. And whenever pastors get together and they discuss how do I handle this given situation biblically, um, Let's just make up a situation. So say you have uh, you ha- you have a couple in the congregation going through marriage counseling, and uh, there's some person in the congregate other person in the congregation that doesn't know the details of the situation, but is going around and gossiping about about it and and making things up and and telling people things that they don't know about. Um, we'd get together and we'd say, okay, what does the Bible say about marriage? What does the Bible say about gossip? What does the Bible say about all these different things? And we discuss, okay, what what advice do we give to this person? What advice do we what do we talk to our elders about? What um, what are the biblical commands that are pertinent to this situation? So on and so forth, right? The the work of figuring out what to do. Practically, concretely, in any given situation, it must involve counsel. It must involve casuistry. It must involve thinking things through according to the scripture. And so uh, we see here with Rehoboam that when he neglects to figure out practically what needs to be done in order to uh, and just does what he wants – it falls apart, right? Uh, it doesn't hold together. So he needs to hold the the um, nation together, and because he lacks counsel, he lacks the ability to hold it together. The other thing uh, related to that here is um, to recognize that compromise. isn't always bad. So I think part of the sinful condition is to think that in any given situation that if you make a decision, you're setting some sort of eternal precedent that's going to set be set in stone and that you're never going to be able to move on from that. 
So people have, of course, everyone in any situation, everyone has in their own mind, in their eyes, what should be done, uh, what they think the right course of action is, like Rehoboam does. And they think if they get – part of the sinful condition and pride is to think if you get anything less than that, um, then you're somehow compromising on your values and that you're never going to be able to um, get things to where you think they need to be. And this is not how we should act as Christians. Um, we should – Act with compassion and love and kindness toward one another, and that involves certain compromises. Compromise, however, um, it shouldn't be of values, but we need to be specific of what values are biblical and not need not to be compromised, and what values are our own prideful ideas, right? So um, one way to think think about this that I think about this in is with parenting and in parenting when you discipline a child it's very important to discipline not for things that just kind of annoy you as a parent but to discipline only for things which are actually sin and biblical commands so when Paul says uh, raise your children in fear and admonition of the Lord, but do not exasperate them. Uh, do not do not bring them uh, to anger. I think what he's talking about is this balance of um, only of, of of having a high standard of disciplining for biblical commands, truly biblical commands, and true and true sin, but but not. Um, disciplining them for kind of silly things. Um, and so for, for instance, like uh, in, in, our, in our modern world, I, I feel bad, especially for like young boys, because young boys um, in school are taught to kind of behave like little girls in the sense that they're supposed to sit still for like seven hours straight, and that's not in the nature of little boys. Um, little boys are not meant to sit still for seven hours straight. If you've ever had a little boy uh, or been around them, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and I, I don't think it is right to discipline uh, little boys harshly for not acting like a little girl, right? So... Um, that would be one example. But the idea here is that when we um, work with people, when we try and figure out situations, we want to be sure that we're not compromising on things that really matter. Like now if a little boy steals something, he needs to be disciplined. Seventh commandment, right? That's a biblical command. But uh, we can compromise on things that don't actually matter. Right, and that's not sending some sort of eternal precedent. Um, and so the taxes and the um, the forcefulness with which the citizens of the United Kingdom are governed, there's there's not a biblical command that they need to be governed one way or another. 
uh, particularly in this way, Rehoboam needs to compromise. Um, what he should be forceful on is not taxes, but he should be forceful on. Um, and in fact, he's verging on sin because he's going to chastise them with scourges, as he says, uh, which is oppressive. That goes against our Bible memory work, Ephesians 6, 9, um, that he's threatening those who are under him. He should be disciplined on making sure that they're worshiping the Lord and the Lord alone. Right. But he doesn't do that. Um, so he he should compromise on uh, their force of work. He should not compromise on their religion. But he he switches those two things and he does the opposite. He compromises on their religion, as we'll see. He uh, doesn't compromise on the force of work. And so um, thinking about what to compromise on is an important thing when we're thinking about um, what we're going to do in a specific situation. Well, uh, I thought we were going to get through all of Rehoboam, but that didn't happen. That's okay. We'll finish up Rehoboam next week. Any final questions or comments on any of that? Yes, Steve? This is probably next week, but uh, what are the high places? Yeah. So uh, high places are literally high places. Um, I I believe they are um, probably hills and and small mountain tops and things where throughout the land um, they would do different worship, good or bad worship. Um, both, both worship of the Lord and worship of um, the false gods. They would set up the high places are where they'd set up shrines and things, um, and that just goes to that's just the biblical theme that worship of the Lord and worship worship of any any god, false or not, uh, happens. There's a geography of worship um, that it. That you go up to worship the Lord. You lift, lift up your eyes to the hills. You uh, go to the high places. And then if you're going down, it's always bad. You're going down to Sheol. You're going down uh, to the pit of despair. Um, Jesus is going to be thrown off the temple, right? Um, go ahead. Yeah. It reminds me of when they tried to build the Tower of Babel, they were trying to get yep. closer to God. So this is still the same. Yeah. I can send you an essay that I have somewhere filed away called, I think it's called the Geography of Old Testament Worship or something like that. Anyway, it addresses this, but um, it's why we have steps leading up to our altar. Um, and the, yeah, the, the, that's just the, um, I mean, God is said to dwell in the heavens, which are above so in kind of biblical cosmology, the heavens are above the firmament, right? Um, so going up is, go, is going closer to God in a sense. Yep. All right. Uh, let's end with a quick word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us friends and counselors uh, to 
share with us Christian wisdom from your holy scriptures. We pray that we would always seek Christian counsel in situations which we need to consider your word carefully. We pray that you would bless our worship today in spirit and in truth. And we pray that you would open the hearts and minds of all believers to hear your word and that they may live it out in their lives and be blessed today. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.